You're listening to Time in the Word. Today, Dr. Gonzalez begins an expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. In today's study, he will introduce the epistle covering important background information, such as the author, the background and destination of the letter, the purpose and occasion of the epistle, and the epistle's doctrinal emphasis. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez begins his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. want to give you a context of the epistle. We'll start looking at actual chapter and verses during the second meeting, but for, the, for this time, I want to give you a little bit of context and background around the epistle itself. Who wrote the epistle? Well, the epistle to the Galatians claims to have been written by Paul himself. We see that in verses 1 of chapter 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5. And it is commonly recognized Uh, as one of the four chief epistles that Paul wrote. The four chief epistles being, of course, Romans, uh, Galatians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And on Wednesday nights, now we're embarking in a a study of 1st Corinthians, so we're going to be spending some time with Brother Paul uh, over the next uh, few months. This almost universal recognition of the epistle as Paul's is certainly supported by the testimony of the early church. There are, uh, there's many, or there may be even an allusion to the wording of Galatians in the very earliest extant Christian document that we have, which is the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, which was written in A.D. 96. So very short after the epistle was authored, it appears to already have been quoted by other individuals who were writing. Um, Further allusions or indirect citations from the early second century are found, for example, in Ignatius, in Polycarp, Polycarp being a disciple of John, uh, Barnabas, and Hermas. So by the end of the second century, It was clearly used as Paul's uh, by such individuals as Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and the Moratorian Canon. Uh, That's important because it helps establish not only the inspiration uh, uh, but the canonicity of this book itself. Um, Nothing in the epistle, in this particular epistle we're going to look at, is inconsistent with any other of the Pauline teaching. Uh, On the contrary, the careful explanations that we find in this epistle uh, are commonly made the norm by which we measure the claims of other documents that have come from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Who did he write the epistle to? We know it was Galatia, but who are the Galatians? There are two different theories the Northern Galatian uh, theory or the Southern Galatian theory. Galatia, the name Galatia itself is derived from the barbaric Gauls or Celtics uh, or Celts who had settled in Asia Minor after several centuries of uh, plundering the Greek and the Roman empires. Under Roman rule, the original region of Galatia 
was made part of a larger province by the same name in Central Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. So to which Galatians uh, was this letter written? Was it written to those who were uh, living in the north, the old Celtic or ethnic Galatians? Or was it written to the Christians in the south, the provincial Galatia, in the cities of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch? Well, nobody has truly defined the answer to that question, although there are many, many favorable factors that uh, lead us to believe that the recipients of this epistle uh, were the folks in uh, the south, um, not the north. And some of the reasons for this kind of support is Paul had an incredible desire to visit, visit large Roman cities uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, he wanted to see the, the gospel spread and larger Roman cities were good avenues by which the gospel could spread uh, to many and quickly. Uh, we also see the general movement of Paul and Timothy as it is recorded by Luke, uh, particularly in, in, in the book of Acts. Uh, we have pretty significant knowledge. This is a third reason. We have pretty significant knowledge about the churches uh, in the south. Um, but we have virtually no knowledge or very little knowledge about the churches in the north. Um, so that has been used as a reason as to why we believe that the recipients of the church were the folks in the south. Um, another reason they use is that the likelihood that Jewish, and remember the, the big problem in the church in Galatia was the false teaching or the perversion of the gospel by by the Judaizers. Uh, Judaizers, you know, scholars uh, would argue that the likelihood of Jewish uh, legalizers or the Judaizers, uh, the likelihood that they would come to cities in the north uh, is unlikely. They would probably gravitate to the, to the larger Roman cities to where Paul would have gone and went and founded churches uh, to start spreading their false teaching. And one final that I will give you, and there are a number of, of others that are, that are out there, uh, Paul's general preference for Roman titles, especially in referring to uh, area churches. One significant thing is um, the Jerusalem Council is never mentioned in Galatians. Uh, and in that council, many issues that would have addressed the issues that were you know, the, the, some of the concerns that were happening in the Galatian church, certainly the decisions of that council would have been mentioned. Uh, if it had been, been written to the northern Galatian folks, we probably would have seen that included, but the, but the date given for, for the writing of the church to the south uh, made the writing of the church happen before the Jerusalem council, so there's no, there's no mention of it, which which would have been very helpful in addressing some of the issues in that church. Um, we know that on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas established four churches uh, in the southern part of the province, in the cities of Antioch, 
Iconium, um, Lystra, and Derbe. That's in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And those churches apparently came to form something of a regional body of believers. Something interesting about this epistle is that you note that it's not addressed to any one particular church in that area of Galatia. It is addressed simply to the believers of Galatia. So many scholars believe that, that, that these churches came uh, to form something of a regional body of believers. Uh, therefore, the, the, the epistle doesn't identify any one particular church. Um, the fact that the book of Acts mentions the four churches established by Paul in the south and mentions none in the rest of the province makes obviously uh, uh, a good argument for the churches of the south being the recipients. Now, you recall that while in Galatia, Paul almost lost his life. Um, Acts chapter 14 records for us that after he had established um, the churches and when uh, he was stoned and, 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 and left for dead by the antagonistic Jewish leaders who had followed him from um, Antioch and Iconium to Lystra. Um, after establishing those churches in those southern uh, cities, he revisited, him and Barnabas revisited those churches. It's interesting, in Galatians, uh, uh, or in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, it says that Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas revisited the other three cities for this purpose, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Um, on his second journey, Paul visited the Galatian churches, this time with Silas. And we are told in Acts chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, that the reason for his visit was they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Why did he write the epistle? What's the purpose for the epistle? Well, Paul wrote primarily to combat false doctrine. Uh, you certainly see that in, in, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 5, and chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Somehow, news got to Paul of the trouble in the churches in, in Galatia. And he wrote to call the churches back to the true gospel of grace that had originally been delivered to them by him. He had founded these churches uh, in Galatia himself. And therefore, he was particularly attached to those churches. Um, when you read the epistle, you see that Paul is not really uh, um, speaking to the opponents. He's not speaking to the Judaizers. He is speaking to the church. The audience is the church. And for, the, for that reason, we don't know who the source of this false teaching 
uh, really is in terms of it being clear to us. All we know is that they were uh, Jewish. Uh, in fact, some have referred to them as Christian Jewish legalizers, and there's a reason why they use those three words in, in the term. But we don't know specifically beyond that who these individuals are. He's never addressing them directly. He's simply addressing the church, speaking of the opponents. Um, we know only one partner in the conversation, but the opinions of the false teachers are certainly hinted in a few places in, in the letter. First, some, have come, some had come to Galatia, according to chapter 1, verse 7. They had perverted the gospel. It's an interesting, and I'll probably repeat this during the second meeting as we start looking at, at the first few verses of chapter 1. It is interesting that Paul virtually bypasses altogether a greeting and gets directly into the issue. Something unusual for Paul where he usually spends the first several verses in most of his epistles uh, you know, with an extensive greeting. You don't see that in this epistle. He's very concerned about what is happening in Galatia. He has no time for little talk. He's getting right to the issue. Um, so in, in chapter 1, verse 7, he, he talks about the fact that there are some who are offering a distorted gospel. Now, if you read ch verses 10 through 24 in chapter 1, we get the strong sense that the, uh, his authority is being challenged, and we would understand why his authority would be challenged. If you undermine the messenger, you successfully undermine the message. Uh, so he was, his authority was being challenged. We find also that, that these legalizers were requiring the Galatian believers to take on uh, certain aspects of the Old Testament law, including at least circumcision, festival days. We know from chapter 6 that they did these things for selfish ambitions. It's just a, we're going to get to all what I'm saying now in more detail once we enter the study. And they were doing this in order to avoid getting themselves persecuted for the cross of Christ. In following, it follows that the false teachers, again, could be called Christian Jewish, Jewish legalists. First, they could be called Christian, not in the sense that they were true disciples or followers of Christ, but rather in the sense of having some degree of acceptance of Christ. In other words, they didn't necessarily wholly reject Christ. But they weren't, as we would think of Christians, true followers of the person and doctrine of Christ. Uh, they could be referred to as, as Jewish in the sense that um, they followed the law of Moses. And certainly, they were legalists because they required the Gentiles to convert, Gentile convert, converts to, to keep the law. So, how important is the epistle to the church? Let me give you some of the titles that this epistle has been given. To it, it has been conferred, conferred such titles as the 
Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty. And I don't, another title that has been given to it is The Battle Cry of the Reformation. Yet another one, The Christian's Declaration of Independence. It is clearly the Holy Spirit's charter of spiritual freedom for those who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Many church historians maintain that the foundation of the Reformation was laid with the writing of Martin Luther's commentary in the epistle uh, to the Galatians. Luther said, and I quote, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. Catherine was the name of his wife. It was out of his careful and submissive study of this epistle and other uh, epistles such as Romans that Luther discovered God's plan of salvation by grace, working through faith, a plan unalterably contrary to the thousand-year-old Roman Catholic teaching of salvation by works. And you remember who Martin Luther was, a Roman Catholic clergy. Merrill Tenney wrote of Galatians the following. He said, Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the Western uh, world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom which separated Christianity from Judaism and which launched it upon a career of missionary conquest. It was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because its teaching of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of the Reformers. It's an important epistle, a very important epistle. The message of Galatians is the message of the Christian's spiritual freedom. His deliverance by Christ from the bondage of sin and from religious legalism, which is what the churches in Galatia were now dealing with. I suppose perhaps because Paul was so intensely concerned about the matter of gracious salvation in Christ and about the violent attacks on the gospel being made by the Judaizers, Galatians is the only one of his epistles, again, that spends almost no time whatsoever in salutation. You notice in verses 6 and 7, I mean, as soon as he opens the epistle, verses 6 and 7, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, how critical is the epistle to the Galatians? 
which is really no gospel at all. What was at stake here? The very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says it's no gospel at all. Why? Because any other gospel by definition is no good news. Doesn't it seem strange that Paul would have words of commendation for the worldly, divisive, immoral, and immature Corinthian believers and yet have not have one have none for the saints in Galatia. Why? I mean, we're going to find out as we go through Corinthians about many of the challenges that the Corinthians were facing. I mean, that was a troubled church. But he spends more time, you know, saluting them than he does to this church. Well, the difference was that as bad as the Corinthian situation was, the major problem there did not pertain much to right doctrine, as our brother shared this last Wednesday. It pertained more to right living, practice. In the Galatian churches, on the other hand, the very heart of the gospel was being undermined by false teachers. The gospel of grace, the gospel that saved you, the only gospel that saves was being trampled. And in its place was being offered the gospel of works, which Paul says is no gospel at all, but a distortion of God's truth, which leads to eternal damnation. That's what is at stake. So now we can understand why he spends a little more time you know, in salutation with the Corinthians, as bad as things were. What was at stake here? Whole different game. Um, some of the, some of the uh, doctrinal maybe emphasis in this, in this um, after Paul had been stoned, um, legalizers come back to these churches and sow confusion and discord in those infant churches. And even greater danger, however, uh, were Jews who had made the superficial profession but turned back to Judaism and sought to make Christianity. Here's, here's part of the issues going on. And sought to make Christianity nothing more than an extension of their tradition, of their system of works righteousness. So much emphasis is spent addressing that particular issue. What's interesting is that as you study this epistle, and Paul had made this warning to the elders in the church at Ephesus, the Judaizers arose in many cases from within the church itself. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, it says that they would arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 
the, the Judaizers were seriously distorting the gospel of Christ. They taught Gentiles, for example, that they must become Jews by circumcision before they could become Christians, and that all Christians, Jewish and Gentile alike, were righteous before God only if they remained bound under the Mosaic laws, regulations, and ceremonies. So in verse 9, referring back to verses 6 and 8 in chapter 1, here's what Paul says. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be anathema, eternally damned. Why? Because anybody who accepts that gospel is eternally damned. And in essence, their blood is like